Book Two, Chapter Three of The Crossing by Winston Churchill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three We Go to Danville. Two years went by, two uneventful years for me, two mighty years for Kentucky. Westward rolled the tide of immigrants to change her character, but to swell her power towns and settlements sprang up in a season and flourished and a man could scarce keep pace with the growth of them doctors came and ministers and lawyers generals and majors and captains and subalterns of the revolution to till their grants and to found families there were gentry too from the tidewaters come to retrieve the fortunes which they had lost by their patriotism there were storekeepers like mr scarlett and adventurers and ne'er-do-wells who hoped to start with a clean slate and a host of lazy vagrants who thought to scratch the soil and find abundance i must not forget how at the age of seventeen i became a landowner thanks to my name being on the roll of colonel clark's regiment for in a spirit of munificence the assembly of the commonwealth of virginia had awarded to every private in that regiment one hundred and eight acres of land on the ohio river north of the falls sergeant thomas mcchesney as a reward for his services in one of the severest campaigns in history received a grant of two hundred and sixteen acres you who will may look at the plat made by william clark surveyor of the board of commissioners and find sixteen acres marked for thomas mcchesney in section one six nine and two hundred more in section three section three fronted the ohio some distance above bear grass creek and was of course on the illinois shore as for my own plots some miles in the interior i never saw them but i own them to this day i mention these things as bearing on the story of my life with which i must get on and therefore i may not dwell upon this injustice to the men who won an empire and were flung a bone long afterwards it was early autumn once more and such a busy week we had had at the mill that tom was perforce obliged to remain at home and help though he longed to be gone with cowan and ray a-hunting to the southwest up rides a man named jarrett flings himself from his horse passes the time of day as he watches the grinding helps tom to tie up a sack or two and hands him a paper what's this says tom staring at it blankly you won't blame me mac answers mr jarrett somewhat ashamed of his role as process server ain't none of my doings read it davy said tom giving it to me I stopped the mill, and, unfolding the paper, read. I remember not the quaint wording of it, save that it was ill-spelled and ill-writ generally. In short, it was a summons for Tom to appear before the court at Danville on a certain day in the following week, and I made out that a Mr. Neville Colfax was the plaintiff in the matter, and that the suit had to do with his land neville colfax i exclaimed that's the man for whom mr potts was agent 
Ay, ay, said Tom, and set him down on the meal bags. Drat the varmint, he can have the land. Have the land? cried Polly Ann, who had come in upon us. Have you no spirit, Tom McChesney? There's no chance again the law, said Tom hopelessly. There's Perkins had his land took away last year, and Terrell's moved out, and twenty more I could name. And there's Dan'l Boone himself. Most of the rich bottom he took up the critters have got away from him. Ye'll go to Danville and take Davy with ye and fight it, answered Polly Ann decidedly. Davy has a word to say, I reckon. "'Twas he made the mill and scared that Mr. Potts away. "'I reckon he'll get us out of this fix.' Mr. Jarrett applauded her courage. "'Ye have the grit, ma'am,' he said, as he mounted his horse again. "'Here's luck to ye.' The remembrance of Mr. Potts weighed heavily upon my mind during the next week. Perchance Tom would have to pay for this prank likewise. "'Twas indeed a foolish, childish thing to have done.' and I might have known that it would only have put off the evil day of reckoning. Since then, by reason of the mill site and the business we got by it, the land had become the most valuable in that part of the country. Had I known Colonel Clark's whereabouts, I should have gone to him for advice and comfort. As it was, we were forced to await the issue without counsel. Polly Ann and I talked it over many times while Tom sat morose and silent in a corner. He was the pioneer, pure and simple, afraid of no man, red or white, in open combat, but defenseless in such matters as this. "'Tis Davy will save us, Tom,' said Polly Ann, with the learning he's got while the corn was grinding. I had indeed been reading at the mill while the hopper emptied itself such odd books as drifted into Harrodstown. One of these was called Bacon's Abridgment. It dealt with law, and it puzzled me sorely. And the children, Polly Ann continued, you'll not make me pick up the four of them and pack it to Louisiana because Mr. Colfax wants the land we've made for ourselves. There were four of them now indeed, the youngest still in the bark cradle in the corner. He bore no less illustrious name than that of the writer of these chronicles. It would be hard to say which was the more troubled, Tom or I, that windy morning we set out on the Danville Trace. Polly Ann alone had been serene, I and smiling and hopeful. She had kissed us each good-bye, impartially, and we left her with a future governor of Kentucky on her shoulder, tripping lightly down to the mill to grind McGarry's corn. When the forest was cleared at Danville, justice was housed first. She was not the serene, exorable dame whom we had seen in pictures holding her scales above the jars of earth. Justice at Danville was a somewhat higher-spirited, quarrelsome lady who decided matters oftenest with the stroke of a sword. There was a certain dignity about her temple withal. For instance, if a judge wore linen, that linen must not be soiled. Nor was it etiquette for a judge to lay his own hands in chastisement on contemptuous persons, though Justice at Danville had more compassion than her sisters in older communities upon human failings. There was a temple built to her of hewed or sawed logs nine inches thick, 
so said the specifications within the temple was a rude platform which served as a bar and since justice is supposed to carry a torch in her hand there were no windows nor any windows in the jail next door where some dozen offenders languished on the afternoon that tom and i rode into town there was nothing auspicious in the appearance of danville and no man might have said then that the place was to be the scene of portentous conventions which were to decide the destiny of a state here was a sprinkling of log cabins some in the building and an inn by courtesy so called tom and i would have preferred to sleep in the woods nearby with our feet to the blaze this was partly from motive of economy and partly because tom in common with other pioneers held an inn in contempt but to come back to our arrival it was a sunny and windy afternoon and the leaves were flying in the air around the courthouse was a familiar buzzing scene the backwoodsmen lounging against the wall or brawling over their claims the sleek agents and attorneys and half a dozen of a newer type these were adventurous young gentlemen of family some of them lawyers and some of them late officers in the continental army who had been rewarded with grants of land these were the patrons of the log tavern which stood nearby with the blackened stumps around it where there was much card-playing and roustering ay and even duelling of knights there's mac cried a backwoodsman who was sitting on the courthouse steps as we rode up howdy mac be they trying to get your land too howdy mac said a dozen more paying a tribute to tom's popularity and some of them greeted me is this where they take a man's land away says tom jerking his thumb at the open door tom had no intention of uttering a witticism but his words were followed by loud guffaws from all sides even the lawyers joining in i reckon this is the place tom came the answer i reckon i'll take a peep in there said tom leaping off his horse and shouldering his way to the door i followed him curious the building was half full two elderly gentlemen of grave demeanor sat on stools behind a puncheon table and near them a young man was writing behind the young man was a young gentleman who was closing a speech as we entered and he had spoken with such vehemence that the perspiration stood out on his brow there was a murmur from those listening and i saw tom pressing his way to the front have any of ye seen a feller named colfax cries tom in a loud voice he says he owns the land i settled and he ain't ever seed it there was a roar of laughter and even the judges smiled where is he cries tom said he'd be here to-day another gust of laughter drowned his words and then one of the judges got up and rapped on the table the gentleman who had just made the speech glared mightily and i supposed he had lost the effect of it what do you mean by interrupting the court cried the judge get out sir or i'll have you fined for contempt tom looked dazed but at that moment a hand was laid on his shoulder and tom turned why says he there's no devil if it ain't the colonel 
Polly Ann told me not to let them scare me, Colonel. And quite right, Tom, Colonel Clark answered, smiling. He turned to the judges. If your honors please, said he, this gentleman is an old soldier of mine, and unused to the ways of the court. I beg your honors to excuse him. The judges smiled back, and the colonel led us out of the building. Now, Tom, said he, after he had given me a nod and a kind word, I know this Mr. Colfax, and if you will come into the tavern this evening after court, we'll see what can be done. I have a case of my own at present. Tom was very grateful. He spent the remainder of the daylight hours with other friends of his, shooting at a mark nearby, serenely confident of the result of his case now that Colonel Clark had a hand in it. Tom, being one of the best shots in Kentucky, he had won two beaver skins before the early autumn twilight fell. As for me, I had an afternoon of excitement in the court, fascinated by the marvels of its procedures, by the impassioned speeches of its advocates, by the gravity of its judges. Ambition stirred within me. The big room of the tavern was filled with men in heated talk over the day's doings, some calling out for Black Betty, some for rum, and some demanding apple toddies. The landlord's slovenly negro came in with candles, their feeble rays reinforcing the firelight and revealing the mud-chinked walls. Tom and I had barely sat ourselves down at the table in a corner when in came Colonel Clark. Beside him was a certain swarthy gentleman whom I had noticed in the court, a man of some thirty-five years with a fine, fleshy face and coal-black hair. His expression was not one to give us the hope of an amicable settlement. In fact, he had the scowl of a thundercloud. He was talking quite angrily and seemed not to heed those around him. Why the devil should I see the man, Clark? he was saying. The colonel did not answer until they had stopped in front of us. Major Colfax, said he, this is Sergeant Tom McChesney, one of the best friends I have in Kentucky. I think a vast deal of Tom, Major. He was one of the few that never failed me in the Illinois campaign. He is as honest as the day. You will find him plain-spoken, if he speaks at all, and I have great hopes that you will agree. Tom? The Major and I are boyhood friends, and for the sake of that friendship he has consented to this meeting. I fear that your kind efforts will be useless, Colonel, Major Colfax put in rather tartly. Mr. McChesney not only ignores my rights, but he was near to hanging my agent. What? says Colonel Clark. I glanced at Tom. However helpless he might be in a court, he could be counted on to stand up staunchly in a personal argument. His retorts would certainly not be brilliant, but they surely would be dogged. Major Colfax had begun wrong. I reckon you got no rights that I know on, said Tom. I cleared the land and settled it, and I have a better right to it nor any man, and I've got a grant for it. A Henderson grant, cried the Major. Tis so much worthless paper. I reckon it's good enough for me, answered Tom. It come from those who blazed their way out here and druv the redskins off. I don't know nothing about this newfangled law, but tis a queer thing to my thinking. 
if them that fit for a place ain't got the first right to it major colfax turned to colonel clark with marked impatience i told you it would be useless clark said he i care not a fig for a few paltry acres and as god hears me i'm a reasonable man he did not look it then but i swear by the evangels i'll let no squatter have the better of me i did not serve virginia for gold or land but i lost my fortune in that service and before i know it these backwoodsmen will have every acre of my grant it's an old story said mr colfax hotly and why the devil did we fight england if it wasn't that every man should have his rights by god i'll not be frightened or wheedled out of mine i sent an agent to kentucky to deal politely and reasonably with these gentry what did they do to him some of them threw him out neck and crop and if i'm not mistaken said major colfax fixing a piercing eye upon tom if i'm not mistaken it was this worthy sergeant of yours who came near to hanging him and made the poor devil flee kentucky for his life this remark brought me near to an untimely laugh at the remembrance of mr potts and this though i was far too sober over the outcome of the conference colonel clark seized hold of a chair and pushed it under major colfax sit down gentlemen we're not so far apart said the colonel coolly the slovenly negro lad passing at that time he caught him by the sleeve here boy a bowl of toddy quick and mind you brew it strong now tom said he what is this fine tale about a hanging for nothing said tom you tell me you didn't try to hang mr potts cried major colfax i'll tell you nothing said tom and his jaw was set more stubbornly than ever major colfax glanced at colonel clark you see he said a little triumphantly i could hold my tongue no longer major colfax is unjust sir i cried twas tom saved the man from hanging eh says colonel clark turning to me sharply so you had a hand in this davy i might have guessed as much who the devil is this says mr colfax a sort of ward of mine answers the colonel drummer boy financier strategist in my illinois campaign allow me to present to you major mr david ritchie when my men objected to marching through the ice-skimmed water up to their necks mr ritchie showed them how god bless my soul exclaimed the major staring at me from under his black eyebrows he was but a child with an old head on his shoulders said the colonel and his banter made me flush the negro boy arriving with the toddy colonel clark served out three generous gourds full a smaller one for me your health my friends and i drink to a peaceful settlement you may drink to the devil if you like says colonel colfax glaring at tom come davy said colonel clark when he had taken half the gourd let's have the tale i'll warrant you're behind this i flushed again and began by stammering for i had a great fear that major colfax's temper would fly into bits when he heard it well sir said i i was grinding corn at the mill when the man came i thought him a smooth-mannered person and he did not give me his business 
He was just for wheedling me. And was this Mr. McChesney's mill? said he. Aye, said I. Thomas McChesney? Aye, said I. Then he was all for praise for Thomas McChesney. Where is he? said he. He's at the far pasture, said I, and may be looked for at any moment. Whereupon he sits down and tries to worm out of me the business of the mill, the yield of the land. After that he begins to talk about the great people he knows, Sevier and Shelby and Robertson and Boone and the like, I and his intimates, the Randolphs and the Popes and the Colfaxes in Virginia. "'Twas then I asked him if he knew Colonel Campbell of Abingdon. "'And what devilry was that?' demanded the Colonel, as he dipped himself more of the toddy. "'I'll come to it, sir. "'Yes, Colonel Campbell was his intimate, and ranted if he did not tarry a week with him at Abingdon on his journeys. "'After that he follows me to the cabin and sees Polly Ann and Tom and the children on the floor poking a possum ay says he in his softest voice a pleasant family scene and this is mr mcchesney i'm your man says tom then he praised the mill site and the land all over again tis good enough for a farmer says tom who holds under henderson's grant i cried twas that you wished to say an hour ago and i saw i had caught him fair by the eternal cried colonel clark bringing down his fist upon the table and what then i glanced at major colfax but for the life of me i could make nothing of his look and what did your man say said colonel clark he called on the devil to bite me sir i answered the colonel put down his gourd and began to laugh the major was looking at me fixedly and what then said the colonel it was then polly ann called him a thief to take away the land tom had fought for and paid for and tilled the man was all politeness once more said that the matter was unfortunate and that a new and good title might be had for a few skins he said that interrupted major colfax half rising in his chair he was a damned scoundrel so i thought sir i answered the devil you did said the major tut colfax said the colonel pulling him by the sleeve of his greatcoat sit down and let the lad finish and then mr boone had told me of a land agent who had made off with colonel campbell's silver spoons from abingdon and how the colonel had ridden east and west after him for a week with a rope hanging on his saddle i began to tell this story and instead of the description of mr boone's man i put in that of mr potts in height some five feet nine spare of sallow complexion and a green greatcoat major colfax leaped up in his chair great jehovah he shouted you described the wrong man colonel clark roared with laughter thereby spilling some of his toddy i'll warrant he did so he cried and i'll warrant your agent went white as birch bark go on davy there's not a great deal more sir i answered looking apprehensively at major colfax who still stood the man vowed i lied but tom laid hold of him and was for hurrying him off to harrodstown at once which would ill have suited your purpose put in the colonel and what did you do with him 
We put him in a loft, sir, and then I told Tom that he was not Campbell's thief at all. But I had a craving to scare the man out of Kentucky, so I rode off to the neighbors and gave them the tale, and bade them come after nightfall as though to hang Campbell's thief, which they did, and they were near to smashing the door trying to get in the cabin. Tom told them the rascal had escaped, but they must needs come in and have jigs and toddies until midnight. When they were gone, and we called down the man from the loft, he was in such a state that he could scarce find the rungs of the ladder with his feet. He rode away into the night, and that was the last we heard of him. Tom was not to blame, sir. Colonel Clark was speechless, and when for the moment he would conquer his mirth, a glance at Major Colfax would set him off again in laughter. I was puzzled. I thought my Colonel more human than of old. How now, Colfax, he cried, giving a poke to the Major's ribs. You hold the sequel to this farce. The Major's face was purple. With what emotion I could not say. Suddenly he swung full at me. You mean to tell me that you were the general of this hoax? You? he demanded in a strange voice. The thing seemed an injustice to me, sir, I replied in self-defense. And the man a rascal. A rascal? cried the major. A knave, a poltroon, a simpleton. And he came to me with no tale of having been outwitted by a stripling. Whereupon Major Colfax began to shake. Gently at first, and presently he was in such a gale of laughter that I looked on him in amazement, Colonel Clark joining in again. The Major's eyes rested at length upon Tom, and gradually he grew calm. McChesney, said he, we'll have no bickerings in court among soldiers. The land is yours, and tomorrow my attorney shall give you a deed to it. Your hand, McChesney. The stubbornness vanished from Tom's face, and there came instead a dazed expression as he thrust a great hard hand into the Major's. Twarn't the land, sir, he stammered. These varmints of settlers is getting thick as flies in July. Twas Polly Ann. I reckon I'm obliged to you, Major. There, there, said the Major. I thank the Lord I came to Kentucky to see for myself. Damn the land. I have plenty more and little else. He turned quizzically to Colonel Clark, revealing a line of strong white teeth. Suppose we drink a health to your drummer boy, said he, lifting up his gourd. End of chapter 3